Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of That Anthro Podcast. If you noticed, which I'm sure you probably did, we did not have an episode last week, but like I mentioned at the beginning of this season three, episodes will routinely be bi-weekly now. So we're going to have this episode coming out on the 19th. And then on the 31st of October, we're going to have our next episode come out. So I know that's not a Wednesday, it's a Monday, but it is my roommate, Meg Hardy, and uh, they love Halloween and they love everything spooky. So it seemed fitting that their episode would come out on the 31st. So yeah, another bi-weekly episode after this. And then I believe I'm going to do one the week after because after that's Thanksgiving. So yeah, just make sure you're staying up to date with our Instagram so you understand understand the posting schedule. It's a little bit different now. You know, I don't want to do completely bi-weekly. Like if I have enough episodes to do one every week, like I'm going to try my hardest. So yeah, you haven't heard a little segment from me in a while. And that's because I recorded most of the episodes. Well, all the episodes that have come out so far this summer. So I've, uh, been fully focused on just editing them and really adjusting to life in grad school. You're probably sick of hearing me say it by now uh, if you're a, you know, if you're a dedicated listener, but I just started my master's degree at George Mason University. I moved here from Santa Barbara, California, and I've been here for, I think, yeah, like two and a half months now. It's so crazy that it's been that long and crazy in a good way. The weather has definitely changed. You know, we went from 80s and 70s and super humid to this morning. Uh, It was 43 when I took Daisy for our walk, and I think the high of today is something like 54, 56. So the leaves are changing, the leaves are falling. It's absolutely beautiful every time I drive around and I see the brick buildings framed by the beautiful Uh, amber and orange and red and yellow leaves. I'm really thankful and happy to be here. I've wanted to live on the East Coast for a long time, so it really feels like a dream come true. And when I get to see all this beautiful scenery, I really understand that, especially this last weekend. I was in Alexandria, and I got to go to Old Town. That's my favorite part of Alexandria is Old Town Alexandria. It's like basically buildings and streets are preserved from like the 1800s and it's so cool. Uh, I took my dad there cause he was visiting and, uh, I hope one day to like live or, and, or work maybe in old town Alexandria. I feel like that would be honestly a dream come true. That was a lot. I need to take a breath. <laughs> so yeah, uh, all good things. Um, you know, I, I almost wonder if some of you are thinking, hey, like we haven't heard a lot of updates about grad school. Um, And I think that's really because I've been struggling to adjust, not struggling in the way that, you know, I, I can't handle it or my grades are slipping or anything. Nothing like that. Just, you know, adjusting and really getting used to the workload and expectations. I'm super happy with my professors, and that's why I've kind of refrained from talking about grad school in a, well, talking about my struggles in grad school is because I don't want it to reflect on the program because it's, it's not the program. It's simply 
the transition to new expectations, to commuting to school, to living in a brand new place. Everything about my schedule, everything about my routine has changed. And I am someone who thrives on routine. So, you know, I used to walk 10 minutes to campus every day to work, you know, 10 minutes every day and sometimes more, you know, if I was walking farther, but regardless, I would walk a very short distance. You know, now I drive 30 minutes to and from campus and it's great. Uh, I GMU's campus, especially in the fall right now. Oh, it is beautiful. It is magical. I love that campus, but it's an adjustment and you may be rolling your eyes if you've commuted your whole life and she's adjusting to a 30 minute commute. That's not even bad. Well, you know, everything is difficult for different people. So try to take this with some compassion in that I just want to share, you know, my experiences. I've, uh, you know, my dog had dental surgery. I've had to go to the doctors. I got sick, like all I've had been at the mechanics a ton. My car has had some issues. You know, it hasn't just been, oh, grad school is so overwhelming. I can't handle it. That's not been the case. It's life is overwhelming and it's causing me to struggle and be anxious, etc. It's not specifically like one class or one thing. It's more everything altogether. So I'm really happy to be at George Mason. I feel very supported. You know, I've expressed these things to my professors and they've been nothing but understanding and supportive and offering their advice and their experiences in grad school. So, you know, I am extremely thankful, but I don't want people to think that it's been some snap of the fingers and I'm totally hundred percent here. Like I'm happy here. I wake up and I'm happy to be in Virginia. I'm happy to be living in the neighborhood that I live in. I'm happy to be at GMU, but there's been anxiety and there's been transition that's come with that. So I wanted to be honest about that and explain it in the manner of saying it's not one thing. It's, it's everything. So I've definitely, um, been feeling a lot better in October than I did in September. September was my real transition time. And October, I've felt more like I have my weekly routine down. I know where I go grocery shopping. I'm not super reliant on Google Maps anymore. You know, I know how to get to school without the maps. I know how long it takes me to get to and from places, stuff like that. So there has been a been a shift that I have noticed in the last couple of weeks. You know, that being said, it's also midterms week. So I'm working on a huge essay. I have a, a, excuse me, a midterm for my quantitative methods class that I just got yesterday. So things are hectic. And one of the things that I've noticed that's very distinct from undergrad is that, for example, on a weekend, I used to be able to do something Friday, Saturday, and Sunday night if I wanted to. I wouldn't always, but if let's say I wanted to, it was a busier weekend, I got invited to do several things or I wanted to plan to do several things. I could always make time for that, you know, in the evenings. Graduate school has made me realize that I can normally pick one afternoon and evening that I want to be my rest time and that's it. Uh, doesn't mean I don't take breaks and doesn't mean I don't take naps when I need them, stuff like that. But like planned out, scheduled, I'm not going to do anything this night or I'm going to do some fun activity like go into the city or go to a bar with friends, you know, something like that or go to trivia, you know, um, 
all the Witcher things I've done. You know, I have been having some fun outside of the classroom. Don't worry about me. But it's really this kind of picking and choosing, like, what's what's the priority? Um, because even if it's, oh, I need to stay home this Saturday night and do laundry because I don't have any clean clothes left, you know, there's just more time management that goes into grad school. And on that note, I actually, I haven't really talked about it on here because I haven't recorded an intro since I started grad school, is that um, I love my cohort. I feel incredibly lucky that everyone in the cohort gets along well. You know, obviously I I hope that's the case. I hope everyone feels the way I do, but I feel like we all get along really well and um, have great discussions when it's in class, but also are able to have fun and be super friendly outside of class. Everyone's been really lovely and I've met awesome people, some of whom are from the area, others are out of state like myself. So it's kind of a nice balance of those of us that are new to the area and, and those that can kind of help those of us that are new to the area. It's been, you know, it's been wonderful and I'm really, you know, we went to play uh, games the other night. We went to a billiard room and we played uh, darts and pool and it was just so fun. You know, we can all really have that lovely balance of in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Uh, super thankful for that. Now, the why did mention that Daisy had dental surgery, and I don't want anyone to freak out because I know we have a lot of Daisy lovers on here. It was a very routine dental surgery. She's recovering from it beautifully. She has a lot more energy now. They had to extract eight teeth. Um, when I got Daisy from, from the rescue, she had dental disease, and it was kind of always in the back of my mind that I would have to uh, get some more teeth pulled. And when we were leaving California, our vet told us, Hey, you know, I know this is your last appointment here, but I do notice that she has some teeth that I think are going to need to go. Make sure when you move to Virginia, you work on that. So got here, got an appointment and about, she's looking at me right now, about two and a half weeks ago, almost three on Thursday. Oh no, tomorrow it'll be three weeks. Yeah. Tomorrow it'll be three weeks since she had it. She's, she's doing great. She's definitely happier. She got those yucky bacteria teeth out of her. So no worries about Daisy. She's enjoying, uh, she's enjoying it here. She has a yard. Uh, we walk super long time every day cause it's cold now. So, you know, in the summer I had to monitor how much I was walking her because of how hot it was. And the fact that like a lot of our neighborhood doesn't have sidewalks. So we'd have to walk on the road, which is black. And if, if you have dogs, you know that when it's really hot out, you you can't walk them in the heat of the day on that. So recently, since the weather's changed, she's gotten to go for a lot more walks and longer walks, which I know makes her really happy. Um, <clears throat> and it's funny because when we lived in California, she had this irritation in her paws. And because I'm always really cautious about like not letting her walk through big piles of garbage or letting her walk through glass, I kind of just assumed it was some sort of like uh, anxiety thing or just like an irritation that I couldn't get to go away. And it's hilarious. Since we moved here, she has not had irritation at all. Her two back paws were always irritated. Like she was always biting at them. I was always having to tell her to stop. They were always kind of this like tingy red, but there's nothing I could really do about it. I tried some things, but since we moved here, she hasn't been having it. So it's been awesome. But it's funny because since we've moved here, my allergies have been 10 times as bad. So, you know, give and take, give and take. Um, 
yeah, I think that's really all for my like life update. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from me. I realized that I hadn't been recording any intros, but that was because I was just so busy and the episodes I didn't record like anywhere near the time I would have been recording the intro. So it just felt very disconnected and weird. But this week's episode is with Dr. Shepard Siegel, and we recorded this a couple weeks back. He was really fun to get to talk to. I think we bounced off each other really well energy-wise, and he's from California, so we had some commonalities there. But we talk about his book, Tricking Power. So it is a book that examines tricksters throughout mythology throughout history through everything and it's a really interesting approach he is an anthropologist but he's also an education specialist so it's definitely a different episode we're not talking to a professor we're not talking to someone in research we're talking to someone who likes to find analogies and connections throughout history and he writes about them he does have another book that we'll talk about as well and i'm really thankful for him for reaching out to come on the podcast because i was so happy to get to read a few chapters of his book tricking power and tell you guys all about it so without further ado let's get into the episode with dr shepherd siegel Actually, before we do that, I wanted to mention that I'm really thankful that I've been able to um, get Anchor back as a sponsor for the podcast and enable Spotify sponsorships. So if you could make sure to listen through to those Spotify sponsorships, I really appreciate it because it helps make me a little bit of money for all the hard work that I put into this podcast. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That anthro podcast welcome back listeners today we have dr shepherd siegel here to talk about his new book uh tricking power into performing acts of love as well as his educational journey so welcome to the podcast thanks it's uh, it's a pleasure to be here gabriella um, I wanted to start kind of in your previous career, which I was reading about. You were a musician before you got into education and anthropology. So when did you start playing music? Oh, gosh. Um, my folks, uh, you know, my, my folks, uh, my mom in particular, really loved the sound of the cello. And I do as well. I was... Um, encouraged to take cello lessons at a pretty young age and played that through junior high school. Um, 
and then I, you know, I guess not my interest not only in rock and roll, but also in the counterculture things that were happening. I kind of dropped it off. Um, uh, but then when I went to college as an undergraduate, um, I, 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 I didn't, hadn't chosen a major, uh, and I'd been through my first two years. So I decided during my second year that I wanted to major in music. So I, I dropped out for a year and took piano lessons and picked up the bass and started playing stand-up bass and electric bass and studying theory on my own so I could pass the exams that I needed to get back. And what I'd love to share with your listeners is that the reason I uh, chose a music major is because I was always um, wondered a lot about the intersection or lack of intersection between the spiritual and the political. And that our greatest political leaders, if you look at Martin Luther King, look at Abraham Lincoln, look at Mohandas Gandhi, they were, they had deep spirituality as well as political uh, importance and influence and made a difference politically. So for me, music also combined those things. Music comes out of the ground, which is political. We live on the ground, we relate to each other on the ground, that's politics. But music is a reaching for the spiritual. And it's a spiritual thing that you can legally teach in the public schools. And so that was really, so other people, it's like, well, I always took music lessons and I was good at it. And that's why I did a music major. And I've always been a little bit more deliberate about my reasoning. So that's how I, I ended up doing a music major. Um, but also I did it so that I could be a teacher. And I always wanted to teach high school because I liked myself the best in high school. And I know a lot of young people look back at high school in a darker, through a darker lens. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it was a really special time. And for me, young people at the age of high school are um, young enough to, um, to still be playful, to still uh, be idealistic about the world, and they're young enough to have not yet been made cynical about it, which is what's about to happen. That's so, very true. <laughs> that is so true. So that's when I wanted to grab kids' interest. And this even ties into the books that I write about, because I see the trickster archetype as a means by which we can get to a consciousness where we can actually talk about utopia and talk about the kind of world we'd love to live in eventually. Yeah. Yeah, that that's so true. I I miss the days where I wasn't so cynical. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, you can at least have moments. You can at least have moments yeah. when you're not. That's I have right. moments. I think honestly people forget that the the more educated you get, the easier it is to have a more realistic which is sometimes negative view of the world and like for example like job prospects or like I don't know just things like that I feel like I used to be so much more idealistic and now because I know more things I have more realistic views on 
you know, life, but <laughs> I suppose that's part of the whole growing up thing. I keep saying, I'm like, oh, I guess this is what being an adult is like. I felt, I thought in undergrad, I felt like an adult, but not until grad school. Well, here, here, here's how it happened to me. I graduated with a degree in music and I set out to become a music teacher. And sure, I knew how to conduct the orchestra and conduct the band. Of course, being a cellist, um, I couldn't help but evoking the old Woody Allen movie, Take the Money and Run, whereas growing up, he played cello in a marching band. (laughs) And it's one of the more hilarious movie scenes you're going to see. But anyway, um, I lived in, in California, and California had just passed an initiative called Proposition 13, which is way back in the 70s, and it affects it even today, and it limits property taxes. So California went from having some of the best public schools in the nation to a deep deep drop in the quality of their public schools. And the last thing anybody was hiring was a music teacher. So I just like you were saying, Gabriella, I had to face this realistic loss of the job prospect that I thought I had. Um, And so my other passion besides music was rebels, kids on the margins, Mm -hmm. uh, kids who aren't fitting in. So I went to work in the juvenile court system. And my first teaching job was with kids in lockup. And I also uh, got into a special education background as well. Because it's no coincidence that if you look at the prison population or you look at incarcerated youth, that there's a lot of learning disabilities. At at a young age, they had negative experiences in school and became rebels because they couldn't get any status in school because they were struggling. Um, And so, you know, it was this whole thing of labeling. So the, the criminal justice system, you know, and I'm oversimplifying, but it treats the people that it's handling as evil. Yeah. Little criminals, as Randy Newman put it. And, and, and the, or you go into the special education system, which might treat the same child as if they're sick, mm-hmm. that there's a disease. And if we can come up with the right pill, the right medication, or the right therapeutic environment, we can, quote, cure them. And I, I was, even then, you know, I said, well, where's the agency? for these kids. And so since everybody was coming up with labels, I came up with my own label. I said, well, they're not little criminals necessarily, and they're not learning disabled necessarily. I prefer to call them the culturally disgruntled. I like that. (laughs) So that was my gig then. And it's that um, affection and identification with the rebel that connects directly to my books and my writing. Yeah. And I think, too, it's um, something that, you know, as an anthropology student, we talk a lot about, you know, is prison reform and the idea that we can't just, you know, if we're going to continue to have prisons. And I think some people, you know, one of this girl, my cohort specifically, believe we should abolish prisons. But if we are going to continue to have them, there has to be a real emphasis on education and taking a different approach than has been taken in the past several decades towards really trying to like you said, not just label them as something for life and really try to evolve them, whether, you know, I think different people need different things. Some people it's uh, maybe a spiritual education can really help them. Some people, 
it more of an actual tangible like book education can help them so mm-hmm. yeah I think that's really interesting um I'm curious how it seems to me like quite a big shift to go then go get a PhD in anthropology and special education how right. how did that work out well I I, I my, my doctorate is in vocational special education and mm-hmm. you know I was thinking about this before we got online today about you know life is complicated because I'm at the one hand, I'm a utopian, and and I see automation, and I go, look, if you're going to automate people out of jobs, then stop condemning them for not having a job, mm-hmm. and and so let's start talking about a society where employment may become more optional, that you don't need full employment for the economy to function, and so stop worrying about the government paying for somebody to not go hungry or be in poverty, you know, or stop automating, you know, and make everything labor intensive. But that doesn't seem to be the direction we're going. So even though I'm a utopian who believes in a world where work as we understand it, at the same time, I realized that I lived in a world where you do not have full citizenship or dignity unless you're employed. And this is where my anthropological studies came in. A gentleman on my dissertation committee was uh, from Nigeria. His name was John Ogbu. And he wrote a book called The Next Generation, no connection to Star Trek. Um, And in fact, and, 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 and he did his dissertation, you know, uh, you know, in classic anthropology, right? You don't study your own culture, but you study mm-hmm. others. So as a Nigerian, he was fully qualified to study us. And he did his dissertation on Stockton, California. And he, it's, it's called The Next Generation. And his findings were that, uh, he observed in Stockton that the politics were a matter of the people who were taxpayers deciding to solve the problems of people who were not taxpayers. Mm-hmm. And that was part of what led me to a dissertation that was half of it was ethnography, where I wrote about young people with disabilities and how they were managing to succeed or fail in uh, getting employment. And and so my doctorate's actually in vocational special education, and it's on uh, a young people trying to make that transition from high school to adult life. Um, and and so I think that's answering your question. Yeah. yeah, no, that is. What what are your memories of UC Berkeley? Did you enjoy your time there? Yeah, I, 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 I did. I felt very fortunate to do this. There was a, there was a, um, there was a shortage in California of people with doctorates in special education, but the UC system wasn't offering that. But the teacher mills, if you will, and I don't say that disrespectfully, but it was the state universities or state colleges at that time that were producing the teachers. So there was a uh, two programs, one between Berkeley and San Francisco State University, and the other between UCLA and uh, Cal State LA, yeah. where they were joint doctorate programs because the state universities had the special ed folks, and the UC ones had the doctorate programs. So that was how I ended up in Berkeley. And to answer your question, 
I went, I was kind of like, you know, as you know, it was like a community-based activist. I'm walking around Berkeley, and I'm going, "What's the deal? These people think they're the smartest people in the world. Give me a break." But then, after being there a year or so, I went, "Oh, you know, they kind of are the smartest yeah. people in the world." <laughs> yeah, Berkeley definitely has a very specific energy. I think it's. Um, I've been told specifically, like the anthropology department has kind of removed itself from like that hyper competitiveness. Huh. Um, but it just is, it's a, it's a specific type of space. It's a historical space that, you know, has a lot of political activism. Right. It's also, um, like just, I don't know. It's, it's such a specific, like when I went to tour within five minutes, I was like, I want nothing to do with this. That's me. You know, that's fine. Um, but it's just, I think it's an energy that you either vibe with or you don't. And it's, it's, pretty much one way or the other. I don't necessarily think there are any other people in between. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and, and you know, I had grown up in the Bay Area. Yeah, and I did, I, I mean, I between between my undergrad and my grad work, I, I did five or six years in a rock and roll band and mm-hmm. played around as a bass player. And yeah, t- uh, yeah. well, we can digress forever, yeah. but... That's, no, it's fun though. I like to highlight people's life outside of work on the podcast because, you know, we're, we're all multifaceted human beings. And I think that's what makes right. us all unique. Um, but I actually wanted to kind of start talking about, you know, your writing process and like mm-hmm. how you even, you know, became inspired to write books, because I know I kind of always, since I've been a little girl, had this thing in the back of my head of like, one day I'll write a book. Like, I don't know if it'll be fiction. I don't know if it'll be a autobiography I don't know what it'll be but I've kind of always just had this like inclination towards writing and I've always felt like writing's come easily to me um Mm. so I'm kind of curious like what your um experience and journey with writing has been that's ultimately led you to want to write books yeah you know you ask really fun questions I like this so 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 let me let me take you back to the rock and roll band. So we were we were we were pretty good, but um, being in a band, you know, and we were coming up with arrangements, and we were doing what was called power pop at the time, and you know, we 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 got to play with some semi-famous folks, open for some big acts, and everything. It was really fun, um, but we fought like crazy, you know, because you're with four other four other guys. It was all guys. And we wanted, we were the kind of band that we wanted the arrangements to be perfect. So by the time we got the arrangement, it was really great. But we fought like hell leading up to it. And it was not pleasant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I, when the band ended and I went to graduate school and they were assigning me to write papers, which is where I first started to hone my writing skills, I'd be sitting at the computer writing a paper and I kept waiting for somebody to fight with me about it. Somebody looking over my shoulder saying, no, no, do it this way, do it that way. And I was overcome with this great sense of control that you have as a writer, uh, unless you're co-writing with someone. But mm-hmm. if you're writing on your own, it's like you and the keyboard. And um, mm-hmm. it was very pleasant um, at the time. Now, they... I, I published maybe 30 articles in academic journals and so forth, so I was trained in this academic style of writing. And then, you know, I got my doctorate and I, I went to work in the public school systems with San Francisco's Unified School District and then eventually with the Seattle Public Schools um, and so forth and did a career as, as a public schools educator. I made a conscious decision 
although I, I dabbled in it, but I made a conscious decision not to pursue the academic career. I wanted to be closer to the community. So the, I, I had written a book that at the behest of my mentor, which was part polemic and part an instruction manual on how you do internship programs for high school age children with um, disabilities. And it was pretty successful called Career Ladders. And in the second edition, we pulled all the disability language out and we just called them troubled and troubling young people or young people uh, facing challenges so that you could use it whether the kid had the special ed label or not. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was writing. And then, but, but the books that we're here to talk about today came much later, even though the ideas for them happened to me as a teenager. And as a teenager, I had, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and it was a place I'm, of collective dreaming. We really thought we could make the world pretty special and fun. And those, I was just young enough that I was completely enchanted by those ideas. And so many decades later, okay, a couple decades later, a few decades later, I went, you know, maybe I should write this down. And so it wasn't that I always wanted to be a writer or write a book, but I always wanted to get that message out. I wrote, had to write Disruptive Play twice. The first time I was simply intrigued by the concept of grown-ups who retain the ability to be playful mm -hmm. on into adult years. They never lose touch with that childlike playfulness. So the whole book was written about play. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, there's an academic um, organization with conferences and journals for any subject you can think of. Mm -hmm. So I went started going to conferences for TASP, the Association for the Study of Play. Oh. And while I was there, I met a colleague and she said, she, I was telling her about my book, which was in a draft form. And she said, boy, you really should read this book by Lewis Hyde called Trickster Makes This World. Um, she, and, she, and, and so I had to go back and rewrite the first book all over again because now I got into folklore and mythology mm -hmm. and this idea of the trickster. And my basic premise is that the grown-up who has retained the ability to be playful as they were as a child is going to engage consciously or unconsciously with the trickster archetype. Mm -hmm. and that's going to affect their dreams and their behavior and yeah. so forth. Yeah. And so disruptive play got rewritten with that lens. Now, I can tell you how it led to the present book, but I don't want to just go on too long if I'm getting... No, I think that actually my next question was how did writing the first book affect the second book? And so it seems like it was probably a lot easier if you had to rewrite the first one twice <laughs> and that they're connected. They're fundamentally yes. connected. Thank you, because that's exactly where I was going. So I wrote Disruptive Play, subtitled The Trickster in Politics and Culture. Now, in that book, I um, profiled the uh, many of kind of my childhood heroes who were trickster types, mm -hmm. whether it was Eric Satie, the childlike composer, 
Thelonious Monk, the childlike jazz genius, um, Andy Kaufman, the childlike comedian, Abby Hoffman, the person who brought Child's Play, um, Marcel Duchamp, Alfred Jarry. So what you might be noticing is they're all white males. And I don't apologize for that. It's, it's just based on how old I am and, and where I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in that time of collective utopian dreaming. These were the, the folks I encountered, you know, and the Dadas. And there were you know, like, so if you look at Dada, you know, there was like these six people who we could, of Cabaret Voltaire, who we could consider the founders of Dada. And one of them was, was a woman, Emmy Hennings, and I wrote, I wrote about her. But I'm touring behind this book, Disruptive Play, and I'm getting audience feedback. Where are the women? Where are the women? Where's the female? And, um, and like so many things, it's, it's a complicated uh, question because if, if you, and once again, I refer to a different Nigerian uh, anthropologist. Her, her last name is Ogundipe. And she makes the and she writes about trickster and of course the most intriguing trickster character for me is Eshua Legba from West Africa, and she makes the point uh, that tricksters do not even have gender, mm-hmm. um, but in folk tales because we've lived in a patriarchy for so long, they 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 generally generally not always but they generally present as male, but inevitably. At some point through their episodes in the folktales, they'll gender shift and gender switch. Nonetheless, I went on to investigate the feminine and the woman in tricksterism. And so that is why I had to write another book, because Mm -hmm. I missed it in the first one. And I also devote more chapters to Eshu and Eshu's um, impact on African-Americans, because Eshu makes the middle middle passage and comes here. It's... um, you know, you're an anthropologist, you're a researcher, and you know how hard it is sometimes to, you have a question, and the answer is not always in the uh, mainstream of the research, shall we say? Yeah. And then you had, so women did not enter the anthropological field until at least the 1930s, yeah. or a little bit later, as I recall. And, and, and so for one thing, that perspective was missing, from anthropology. Secondly, when an anthropologist went into a culture that wasn't their own, uh, they would go to the men and they would get the stories from the men. Or even if they did approach the women, the women were not always comfortable sharing their folklore mm-hmm. or, or whatever anthropological uh, qualitative information they had uh, with uh, a male anthropologist. So it was a while in coming, I finally found a really good book called Scheherazade's Sisters uh, by Marilyn Jurek, uh, which is an entire book about female tricksters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that Ooh. that was really, really helpful. And then as I looked through pop culture, you know, I got back to, because I, I love bringing popular culture in, and I am completely in awe of Mae West, uh, the uh, actress who um, was a feminist long before the term was even even born. It's not just that she was unashamed of sexuality and brought sexuality in and was a trickster-like person, but she also, 
her movies, you know, she wrote all the scripts. She mm -hmm. directed all her movies. She had full artistic control, which was unheard of um, in general and especially unheard of for a woman in those periods where she was making her movies. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, what's neat about Mae West is in the book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, Mae West doesn't get a chapter, but she shows up all over the book, not just in the quote, one, women chapters. Now Yoko Ono, who I also think the trickster force is strong with her, she gets an entire chapter. But that's how the first book led to the second, is I wanted to fill in the gaps. And so the books can be read in either order. I see them as companions. There's still a lot of stuff in Disruptive Play that I, I think is really valuable. But together, um, the reader will get a more comprehensive picture of the trickster in politics and culture. Yeah. So when we talk about the trickster archetype, I think it's important to understand that the way you present it and the way that you believe it is that um, kind of, as you mentioned, like humans are not the trickster, but they can have, as you describe it, the force of the trickster, almost kind of like Star Wars, you know, we have the force. Right. So could you elaborate on specifically how you picked each person that, well, some chapters have multiple people and other chapters, like the first chapter is more just, or second chapter is more focused just on Lord Buckley. Um, how right. did you kind of identify these trickster archetype people that you wanted to write about? Well, your questions have been really fun right up to now. <laughs> but now you got me because um, I, I just have to confess to you that it's somewhat intuitive okay. and it's based kind of on this wild time that I grew up in and the, uh, the people that there was this resonance. And I, I, I love the question, to truly, because people will come up to me and they'll go, what, what about so-and-so, and what about so-and-so? And I'll go, and I just, I just kind of have this internal thing that, so it's the trickster in me, to be frank, mm -hmm. that resonates more with some than others. And when somebody suggests it, and I don't completely agree with them, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. Everybody's got someone in them. I think we can start answering this question by looking at one of my prime um, research sources that informs both books by an anthropologist named Paul Radin, R-A-D-I-N. This book came out in the mid-50s, and it's called The Trickster. And uh, Carl Gustav Jung actually wrote the foreword to the book, which is in a very, also a very valuable piece of literature, what Jung had to write, and Jung has written on the trickster. Um, so his book is about the great American trickster from the Winnebago tribe, not far from where you live right now. The Winnebagos uh, were in southern Wisconsin, northern Kentucky, um, and the, uh, it's the oldest story known to humanity, <clears throat> and it's the tales of Wakchunkaga, and Wakchunkaga is this trickster, and, we're in, and once again, um, he presents as male initially, but as a trickster, um, Wakchunkaga has a ravenous appetite for food, and sex, and um, the best food in the tribe was with the chief. So Wakchunkaga's trick to get in with the chief was to turn himself into a woman, 
which they tell in a very funny way how he refashions his body and becomes a woman and then bears children for the chief. But the whole point of all this is the food. It just gets him access to the really good food. And eventually he's found out and like a cartoon, he goes, whoa, I better exit stage right and scram. And so I'm reading these Wachinkaga tales, and that's one of them, but there's about 40 of them. It's a wonderful book. Um, and it dawns on me, after reading them, I went, you know, most of these tales, you can tell the story in six, seven minutes. And I went, oh, my God, it's Bugs Bunny. There's... Bugs yeah. Bunny and Wachinkaga are the same character. And so, um, you know, and, I, and, uh, and Bugs shows up in both books, too. Um, and, 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 um, and so that was kind of how I discovered Bugs Bunny as the great American trickster. And you'll notice in many, perhaps almost all, Bugs Bunny cartoons, at some point, Bugs dresses up as a woman usually to trick or seduce Elmer Fudd. Uh, so the gender shifting goes on. It's as old as humanity itself. It's as old as humanity itself. So that's kind of how I got to that guy. And um, and I have to admit, Abby Hoffman was a hero of mine. And to have levitated the Pentagon 300 feet off the ground was quite a trickster feat. And so that's how that resonance happened. So it's not strictly intuitive. It's based on what I see these, these, these people uh, do. Um, one distinction I make is capital T trickster is like uh, what, uh, Loki or Wachinkaga or Bugs Bunny. They're fictional characters, either from folklore or mythology. So I use a capital T. When it's a human being where I think the force is strong with them, I use a lowercase t. So everybody's got some in them. But when it comes to the human beings, for some of them, it resonates more with me the way Yoko Ono and Mae West do. I even have a, you know, a list, you know, um, the Pirate Princess of Yemen is an amazing folktale that really affected me. Buster Keaton, more than Charlie Chaplin. So I developed my lens, and you referred to an early chapter about Lord Buckley, and prior to that, I want your listeners to know there's a chapter where I outline 10 attributes mm -hmm. of the trickster. So I kind of use that, I don't like the word checklist, but I use that when I'm deciding whether somebody, the force is strong enough in them to include them in the book. How do they show up with these 10 attributes? Mm -hmm. Is that helping? Yeah, I know that. I think that's a great, great insight. The other thing that you identify in that first chapter is the three types of play, which is cultural play, disruptive play, and original play. Yeah. Um, how did those kind of help frame your book throughout? Right. So the idea of original play was inspired by a, a gentleman named Fred Donaldson, who wrote, um, ooh, I forgot the title of the book, but he writes about original play and he, um, you know, he plays with wolves, he plays with dolphins, and he also does play shops. And I went to one of his play shops where we would get in touch with original play. So original play is something all animals do, except humans, greater than the age of five or six. Little baby humans do it, and the occasional older human can do it as well. 
it's described as a tactile, physical form of play. So when he did his play shop, he put out wrestling mats, and we got on the floor, and you get in with one or two or maybe no more than three people, maybe four, and you kind of wrestle. It's not sexual, no hitting, no clutching, no tickling, no biting. You just kind of roll around, and you discover this space where games kind of start to emerge, but then they dissolve as quickly as they emerge. So there's no winning and losing. There's no scorekeeping. There's just, for lack of a better term, it's frolic. It's just being playful. So that's original play. And um, and I love it. And it's a wonderful thing. Now, cultural play is something we, so many of us are engaged in. Cultural play is about keeping score. It's about having games with winners and losers. Mm-hmm. And it's about achievement. So I'm not opposed to cultural play. It's great. It's how you get the best doctor when you're sick and you want the best doctor. You want the one who won the competition uh, for being a good doctor. Um, And of course, we have professional sports and so forth. The problem I have with cultural play is when it gets out of hand. When it gets so out of hand that you've squelched the ability. So parents who structure their kids' lives every second, and the kids are in competitive sports, and they don't get any free time to just be playful I don't agree with that. And what I really don't agree with is war. And Same. Yeah, competitive play taken to its ultimate mm-hmm. takes you to war. And short of war, you have these forms of commercialism and commerce. I don't know about you, Gabriella, but I, when I'm reading, I like to read and get into that cerebral space that's almost mm-hmm. a cerebral form of playfulness where I'm playing with the ideas that the writer is trying to communicate with me. So if I'm trying to read something on a website that has ads popping up every three seconds Mm -hmm. and distracting me, that is a form of... So what I'm trying to do is original play. I want to connect with that writer. What the ads are doing is cultural play. They are competing for my attention. And if they get me to give them my credit card number and buy whatever product they're pushing, they've won the game. So that's a form of cultural play, too. Nothing wrong with it. You need some level of commerce, except when it gets out of hand and it squelches my ability to continue to have that connection with original play. So what's disruptive play? Disruptive play is the introduction of original play into the arenas of cultural play. And it's not appreciated, but it sure can be funny. So the most banal example would be back in the day, I, I don't know if it was, I think the early 80s, these people would be at an NFL game and they'd take off all their clothes and they'd run across the football oh, field. Yeah. It was called streaking, right? It's still a thing. Every single high school football game of mine, someone did that. <laughs> really? Yeah. And they got in trouble. Oh, yeah. And people got angry because they've interfered with the cultural play where somebody's trying to win a game. But that's the deeper meaning of this is the person who is going, ah, let's just have fun. Let's just be crazy and have fun. You know, and so that's what disruptive play is. So when when it's the Vietnam War is going on and Abby Hoffman gets a meeting with the generals and says, uh, look, we're going to have an anti-war demonstration. And they go, this is America. You have the right to protest the government peacefully. 
And so they pull out their legal tablets and their pencils, and they start taking notes. And he says, we're going to demonstrate at the Pentagon. They go, okay, and it's going to be on this date. And they go, okay, we can give you a permit. And he goes, and there will be about ten or 20,000 of us, maybe more, demonstrating. They go, okay, we can be prepared for that. And he says, and I'd like a permit to levitate the Pentagon 300 feet off the ground and exorcise it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they, they drop their pencils and they... Kick, they want to kick him out and go, what are you talking about? You're going to exorcise the Pentagon mm-hmm. and levitate it, you know, because the Pentagon is the international center of cultural play. The ultimate cultural play is war, and there is no more powerful center of war making than our Pentagon in, in, in Washington, D.C. So, so Abby Hoffman's there just disruptively playing putting uh, original play idea into cultural play. So they want to kick him out for trying to levitate, getting a permit to levitate the Pentagon 300 feet off the ground. And he goes, wait, 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 I'm a reasonable man. How about 30 feet? Can you see your way to a permit for 30 feet off the ground? Now, the humor in this, of course, is that the media felt they were being manipulated. And so the media refused to cover it. So if you go into the internet and you start looking for articles about this demonstration and this prank, this trickster-like prank to levitate the Pentagon, um, you're not going to find much. You're going to find people who will tell the story in a folklore way. You're not going to find newspaper accounts because the media said, we're not going to get manipulated by this yippie. And so... And so they didn't cover it. So my contention is, maybe it really happened. Since yeah, we... <laughs> since we didn't see it. So I speak of it as if it was actual fact. And in this yeah. era of fake news, I don't. another trickster guy on the scene right now is Birds Aren't Real. Have you heard about Birds Aren't Real? I have heard about that. <laughs> Yeah. And so in the same spirit of that, I speak of the levitation of the Pentagon as if it happened. Mm-hmm. As That's a historical fact. <laughs> That's, interesting. That's funny. <laughs> um, it's just making me think about the birds aren't real thing. Cause I, I saw someone's like counter argument of like, okay, well then like, what about the dead birds on the ground? You know, like they're not robots, you know, they're birds. Like we run over a bird and like, there's like blood. And then someone was like, well, the government plants those birds to keep up the illusion that all birds are real. Anyway, it's just silly. <laughs> well, I hope your listeners will look it up, but just yeah. uh, to let them know, it's this guy's premise that birds are actually government-sponsored uh, robots that are uh, surveilling uh, the population, and it's just a great, big, massive prank. Uh-huh. And But some it, people really believe it. Some people even believe it, and he's demonstrating the absurdity of lies that are out there and how easy it is for us to be lied to. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is sad because, you know, with media, it is so easy to populate lies. So like, so widespread, um, yet the very important truths and scientific facts like climate change and, you know, I mean, even just, like atrocity atrocities that are happening like for example i can't remember where it is in mississippi where they don't have 
running water, clean running water. Jackson. Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. you know, aren't getting the attention that, that they that they deserve on, you know, on, on the uh, forefront of people's minds. But, you know, it is a sad, it is a sad America we live in. It is. And we, and, and, you know, I don't have the answers, but we have to be alert to the truth. And I just thinking having pranksters out there when it's obvious to at least 99% of the people that the guy is playing a trick, I can't speak to the 1% who believe him that birds aren't real, but that he's trying to raise our consciousness about, yeah, yeah, Yeah. what what can happen in the media. Mm -hmm. Um, So my next question is, what do you hope that readers will take from your book? Uh, So, um, you know, I, I sense you and I, because of anthrop- backgrounds in anthropology, understand the value of telling stories and that that's how cultural values are transmitted. That's how ideas are shared and points are made. So... I was gravitated to that in writing these books and telling the stories of some of these people I talked about. Um, you know, Lord Buckley, the most famous person to have never become famous. Um, and then there's the demigods. I mean, the Loki, not Marvel's version, but the actual mm-hmm. Norse mythological versions of Loki are amazing stories. Loki, by the way, uh, needed a horse. So he changed himself into a woman, and he gave birth to an eight-legged horse named Sleipnir. So this is what tricksters do. Um, I live in the Pacific Northwest, where the raven is the trickster god. Mm-hmm. Bugs Bunny. Actually, I saw a cool exhibit at the Smithsonian on the raven trickster. They have like a very uh, interactive, you walk through, and it's all the whole story of the ravens telling oh. the sun and the moon and the stars. Yeah, so that's yeah. at the Smithsonian now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I yeah. believe it's the the Indigenous Peoples Museum, which sure. they call the American Museum of the the Museum of the American Indian. Yes, and and um, there was a postage stamp, uh, Raven postage stamp, mm-hmm. which of which I bought several. So these stories make the point. But to answer your question, what I hope people take away from my book is I want you to appreciate these trickster heroes. I'll call them that, or these these pranksters out there, but my intention is to create consciousness. We live in a warrior culture. We, and you can't kill an archetype. You can't get rid of them. They all have value, including the warrior, but the warrior, the cultural player, the person or the demigod whose whole reason for being is to win and to defeat their enemy it's gotten out of hand. So I want us to make room for trickster. If I said, I wrote a book about the greatest generals in history and the battles they fought and the wars they won, everyone would know exactly what I meant as Mm -hmm. soon as I said it. But if I say, I've written a book about tricksters to an audience of 10 people, they're going to have 10 different ideas because it's Mm -hmm. a scary concept. It's complex and and it's not part of our consciousness. So my point, Gabriella, is that I, I I'm not I'm not asking people to love these heroes, even though that's fine. I love them too. These trickster types I write about, but to inc- to 
I hate using pop psychology terms, but yes, to get in touch with your own inner trickster mm -hmm. and to recognize it in your own personality and to value it. And maybe the force is strong with you. Maybe it's not strong, but know that it's there. And when you see it in others, appreciate it because the tricksters are often dismissed and try not to dismiss the trickster as being silly. And, 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 and this is a serious question. How can you walk in here with humor and comedy and pranks? I mean, birds aren't real. You're lying to everybody. And the lies in the media are serious. And they are. Mm -hmm. But making fun of it is the trickster's greatest strength. Mockery yeah. is, their, is how they, they, don't, they don't fight to win. They fight to laugh and to help people rediscover uh, fun and, and, and laughter. There was one more thing I, I, I wanted to say about that, but um, it'll come back to me in a second, I'm sure. Okay. Um, I was just curious if there's anything else about the book that you feel, or your other book that's important to kind of touch on that you feel like we didn't touch on. I like to just give people the opportunity to get their thoughts out, you know, towards the end, because I feel like that's important. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I hope that I've said at least one or two or three things today that will um, interest folks enough to, to learn about the book. You can also get a deeper sense of it through my website, which I, I'm sure will It'll you'll be, be you'll be yeah. making, making that available to people. And, oh yes. And I did remember that other point. So I'll leave them with that because this will, I think, help people understand in non-Western cultures, the trickster is a powerful God. Eshuel Egba is not just a trickster who plays tricks and has a lot of fun, but if you want to talk to big old God in, in West African, um, I won't call it religion, but in West African practice, you have to go through Eshu. Eshu is the intermediary and the great interpreter. Eshu speaks all languages, and you can petition Eshu to say, I need to talk to Ashe. Uh, I need to talk to the main God. And, 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 and depending on how things go with Eshu, you will uh, get access or not get access. And Eshu shows up in the Western world too. Wakchunkaga is very powerful. Raven is very powerful. Well, Westernism for so many generations was about building empire. The European imperialists, the Brits, the Dutch, the French, the Portuguese. Mm -hmm. It goes on. If you're building empire, you cannot afford to have some prankster running around <laughs> making fun of power and being anti-war uh, because tricksters are morally indeterminate. But, they, but trickster tales tell you about the birth of morality. And that birth comes as becoming anti-war, not because Tricksters are right and war is wrong. Mm -hmm. They're anti-war because war is no fun. Mm -hmm. War is the least fun thing on the planet. And tricksters just want to have fun. So yeah. you can't have a powerful God running around saying, stop building empire. It's no fun. You're killing other people. You're enslaving them. You're stealing their land. You're stealing their riches. You're doing all the rape and pillage and terrible things mm -hmm. imperialists do. Well, that's going to get in the way. If, and so Western culture took the powerful trickster and put 
trickster in handcuffs. And so the trickster became the court jester. Because mm. you can't kill an archetype, mm -hmm. but you can put handcuffs on it. Mm -hmm. And so the court jester still was able to speak truth to power. And my favorite example is the fool in Shakespeare's King Lear. Mm. They can still speak truth to power, which is what the fool does in King Lear, but they don't have any power. Mm. And that is how by binding the trickster, they were able to continue building empire. Until Dada, until Dada, and you'll have to take a look at disruptive play to see how Dada is what I call the jailbreak and the uncuffing of the trickster back because the, uh, Dada wasn't just an art movement, it was an anti-war movement and the war at the time was World War I. And so the Dadas were the first hippies Mm -hmm. We want a more beautiful world, and we're going to pull pranks in order to get there. Another insight into why I pick one thing after another. So that's the last thing I would love to leave your listeners with. Yeah, I think that it's a very fascinating book. It takes a really unique approach to history and modern culture and combining them. I think that was actually probably the thing that surprised me the most going into it was the fact that, you know, mythology and folklore is mixed with people like, Lord Buckley or Yoko Ono, who are more contemporary people, I think um, it's a very, very fascinating look into these people. And I mean, I don't think many people would expect to see Yoko Ono on a list of, you know, an archetype of a trickster. So mm -hmm. I think it's, it's definitely providing an insight that hasn't been, hasn't been uh, examined before. Thank you very much. And that was, I didn't want to write something that somebody else has already written. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that that's important. I think um, too often, and not all the time, but too often we do see just reinventing the wheel over and over again. And so it is very unique and, and helpful to have, you know, other perspectives brought in. Um, thank you so much for your time. I'm always really excited to talk with authors about their books. You know, I hope one day I write my own book. I don't know what it'll be on, but I do, I kind of see that in my future. I've always kind of felt that someday, someday there will be a book. I actually started to write one a long time ago, but um, that was well, like, mine started a long time ago and I brought it back and I would yeah. love to support you in your writing and thank perhaps you. in our journeys, you know, our paths will cross again and yeah. uh, we'll move towards a more fun world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.